Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us through your word and free us from all of the cultural bondages that hold us captive. We pray this in your name. Amen. A few years ago, I was doing a wedding on the East Coast, and at the reception afterwards, there was this woman who would just not leave me alone. She kept asking me to dance. So I started talking about my wife and my kids, the fact that I was a pastor, you know, started doing this with my wedding ring, you know. Didn't work. She just kept saying, don't you want to dance? Don't you want to dance? And I was thinking, you're hitting on the pastor that just performed the wedding ceremony. I mean, that's weird, right? And I thought, this is how far our culture has come, that it is, in terms of sexual mores, that it is okay to flirt with a married pastor at a wedding. We're doing a series of sermons called Counter Culture. How do we as American Christians live counter to the cultural pressures around us? And do that in a way that is life-giving and positive. And I think when it comes to the issue of sex, we Christians have a very positive, very life-affirming message. We just don't know it. Now, I'm going to keep my comments appropriate, but I am warning you, this is a PG-13 sermon, so kind of fasten your seatbelts. As you know, our culture is obsessed with sex. You go into the grocery store, you see the magazine headlines screaming things like 10 sex secrets you should know. Or you watch television shows like Desperate Housewives that glamorize all kinds of sexual mores that when they're actually lived out in real life are very, very destructive. And we just live in a sex-saturated culture. And to a lot of people out there, the whole Christian ethic of sex just seems weird. I have a single female friend who went to the doctor because she was experiencing a lot of nausea. And the doctor asked her, well, what birth control are you using? And my friend said, none. And the doctor said, well, there's your problem. You're pregnant. She said, can't be. I've never had sex. That only happened once, right? And the doctor said, you have a very unhealthy and unnatural view of sex. You need a different doctor. That's where our culture is. When it comes to sex, the world out there just looks at us Christians as puritanical freaks who just cannot get their groove on. And sometimes the church has contributed to that image by making it seem that God thinks that sex is a sin. In fact, in the Middle Ages, church officials decided that married couples couldn't have sexual relations on Thursdays because that's the day that Jesus was arrested. No sex on Fridays either because that's the day he died. They said you couldn't have sex on Sundays because, well, that's just obvious, right? No sex during Lent, Easter, or Advent. By the time they were done, there were only 44 days that married couples were permitted to have intercourse. Now, some of you hear that and think that sounds terrible, and others might be thinking, how do I get that calendar? (laughs) Just tell them the truth. Either way, it proves the point. The church has sometimes made sex sound sinful. And that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created sex. It is his gift to us. It's one of his best gifts to us. In the story we just read, when Adam first sees Eve, he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's an okay translation of the Hebrew. A better one would have been, whoa. In the Bible, in the Song of Songs, there's a passage where the groom says this to his bride. Your stature is like that of a palm tree. Your breasts like clusters of fruit. And I said, I will climb that palm tree and I will lay hold of that fruit. Don't blame me. It's in the Bible. 
And why would reading a passage like that make us uncomfortable in church? Because somehow we have bought the lie that God thinks sex is bad. But the Bible affirms that sex is one of God's good gifts and that it's good for a couple of reasons. When sex is done God's way within his boundaries, it's good because it joins two lives, not just two bodies. In the passage we read, it says that a man and a woman shall become one flesh. What that means is that when we have sexual relationships with someone, we are joining our whole self to that person, not just our bodies. That's because we are psychosomatic beings. And what we do in our bodies affects our minds, our hearts, our souls, everything else. In fact, there's an interesting experiment done at the University of Michigan that proves this point. Subjects were told to listen to a uh, a sermon, (laughs) listen to a, a speech about raising tuition at the university. And one group was told to nod their head yes as they listened to the speech. Second group was told to nod their head no as they listened to the speech. And the third group was told to just keep their heads still. After the speech, they were asked how they felt about raising tuition. The group that shook their heads yes, overwhelmingly in favor of it. The group that shook their head no, overwhelmingly against it. The group that held their head still, neutral. They didn't care. What they did with their bodies affected how they thought, how they behaved, how they felt. Our bodies and our souls are connected. When we unite our body to someone, we're uniting our soul with that person too. Our heart, our whole lives. And that's what makes sex so powerful. And it's also the reason God says keep it inside marriage. Because to sleep with someone who's not fully committed to you is to risk giving your whole self to someone who may take it and then leave. The result is either sex gets reduced to just a physical act, because in order to protect ourselves, we have to refrain from giving our whole self, and so sex becomes less than God intended it to be, which is what is happening in our culture now. Or someone gets deeply hurt, because they've given their whole self to someone who then didn't stick around. Sex joins not just bodies, but two lives. The other reason sex is so powerful and good in God's economy is that it is meant to be the one place where we can be truly who we are, completely authentic, completely vulnerable. You know, our image of what sex should be like is dominated by Hollywood, which is unfortunate. Because in the movies, it's different than in real life, right? First off, you have to look like Brad Pitt or Britney Spears because normal-looking people don't have sex in Hollywood. Only unnaturally beautiful people do. And then it's always perfect, and the camera's in soft focus, and the music crescendos, and everybody's happy. It's a little more complicated in real life, isn't it? Couples aren't always interested at the same time, and most people don't look perfect, even in the dark. (laughs) And even if they do, give them a few years and they won't. (laughs) And that is precisely the point. God never intended it to be like the Hollywood version. God intended sex to be the one place where we don't have to hide who we really are, where we don't have to pretend that we're something we're not. It's meant to be a place where we can be completely vulnerable, have it all out there in the open. You know, our strengths, but also our weaknesses, insecurities, fears, flaws, and phobias, all of it. That's what it means when it says Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They were completely transparent. They knew everything about each other, and they still accepted each other. And that's what God intended sex to be. And you can only be that honest with someone who says, I'm not going to leave you no matter what I find out about you. 
which is why God says keep it inside marriage. God intends sex to be the one moment where we can be completely honest, and our culture has turned it around 180 degrees and made it the one place where we absolutely must pretend and must hide, or we're going to get left. And the result is that everybody begins to feel insecure. Men begin to feel insecure that they're not the perfect lover or that they have to go to bed with a lot of women in order to be a man. Women feel like they have to look perfect all the time or that they're not worth anything unless some guy wants to sleep with them, which leads to all kinds of things, eating disorders and younger women and self-esteem problems and promiscuity. And our culture calls that sexual liberation. The Bible calls it bondage. You see, I would contend it is not Christianity that has devalued sex. It's our culture, which reduces it to biology and technique. Instead of the joining of two lives, a place of complete honesty and something according to Scripture that's sacred. Because in some way it mirrors our relationship with God where we can be fully known and fully loved. To follow God on this is just better. So, practically speaking, what would it mean to live counter to the culture around us and follow Jesus in this area of our lives, practically speaking? Well, first off, if you're married, start talking to each other. Be open with each other. Marriage is the first prerequisite for great sex, but it doesn't guarantee it. You need to be open with each other about your strengths, your fears, your insecurities. Be completely transparent. You would be surprised how much more powerful sex becomes when you are fully known and still fully loved. And as an American male, it has taken me a long time to learn that the best romance starts by talking. Took me a while to figure that one out. Didn't seem so clear in my 20s. If you're struggling sexually in your marriage, talk about it. That's part of the power of sex. It forces us to open up and share about things we wouldn't normally share. And if you're not having sexual relations in your marriage, talk about it. God does not want us to exist in sexless marriages. The Bible says do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time and then come back together again. And I know some of you are frantically trying to memorize that passage right now, right? I didn't know that was in there. This is awesome. Got to come to church more often. Talk about it. And listen to each other without judgment, without accusation, honestly and with compassion. And if you need help doing that, talk to a pastor or a Christian counselor. And as you share your deepest feelings, you will, get clo you will feel closer and closer to each other. And the more you feel closer and closer to each other, the closer you get. And it just goes without saying, if you're married, don't even toy with the idea of an affair. As a pastor, I have never seen that work out well. Never. Now, if you're single, I know that this can be a very painful topic. And in many ways, you are the victims of a culture that has made it ridiculously hard to find someone to marry. And having been single twice myself, I know how lonely it can sometimes feel. But I also know that God met me in those times. And provided me with close friendships and meaningful work to do in his kingdom as I waited. It wasn't easy, but he was there. And please, for your own sake, save sex for marriage. Even in our culture with a 50% divorce rate, it is still the strongest promise we can make to another person. And it's held together by laws and by the community around us. It's still the strongest promise we can make. It's not just a piece of paper. And sex isn't all it could be unless you have that promise. 
Women, you need to have an attitude that says, I am a treasure and nobody touches this treasure unless he has his spiritual act together because I don't date boys, I only date men. And married women, you could use a little sass like that on your husbands too. It'll help them out. And men, you need to say, I am more than a biological beast driven by my hormones. I am a man, and what a man does is he loves one good woman of worth for a lifetime, and that's what I intend to do, because I want to be sexually whole. You know, I know that there is a lot of pain around this issue for a whole lot of reasons. I know that there's a lot of feelings. It's a very personal subject. Maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe had an affair or you have a sexual addiction. Maybe someone has forced themselves on you in the past. Maybe you feel insecure about who you are, how you look, or what you bring to the marriage bed. Or you're longing for marriage. Or you're in a marriage with no physical intimacy. Or you're the person who's avoiding physical intimacy and you don't even know why. For many of us, myself included, this is an area where we really need God's strength, forgiveness, and his healing. But I can also say that for me, whether it was the scars from my divorce or mistakes I made in high school before I was a Christian, this has been a place where God has consistently met me, forgiven me, changed me, and transformed me. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And what that means is that God can make you pure and whole again. He can repair any damage that has been done. He can restore you. Now, that's not a license to misuse his gift of sex, because that involves all kinds of pain, but it is his promise. I'm going to read to you now a testimony from a man in our congregation who has struggled for many years to be sexually whole. I asked him to write out his story of how Jesus has been changing him, and this is what he wrote. These are his words. He says, I'm an adult male beyond middle age, and I've been confused about sex nearly all my life. I wasn't told anything about it by my parents. By puberty, I was curious but didn't know how or where to learn about it. I was lonely and confused and wandered into unhealthy sexual habits like pornography at a very early age. I got married in my mid-twenties and thought my compulsive behavior would stop, and for a while it did. But soon after, it started again. And I used fantasy and lustful behaviors to provide comfort and the easing of stress that came from pursuing the material success I'd been taught was so important. In my mid-30s, I asked Jesus to become my Lord and Savior. Once again, I thought this would finally bring an end to the sexual compulsions, and for a while it did. But soon I was acting out again. I had an extramarital affair, and then later an emotional affair, and throughout this entire time was always seeking attention from the women around me. I knew God wanted me to stop, but I didn't know how to let him heal me. I wasn't totally sure I wanted him to. My problem eventually began to affect my marriage, slowly destroy, destroying the love my wife had for me. My shame, guilt, and sense of self-loathing led me to isolate myself even more, which led to increased loneliness for both my wife and for me. Lust, a poor substitute for love, was killing our marriage. Finally, the acid of my pain, our pain, ate through the wall of my denial. I began to get more honest with myself, my wife, and with God. I began a process of moving closer to Jesus through honest confession. I began to replace the lies I'd been living with his truth as revealed in Scripture. I slowly began to believe that Jesus loves me just as I am and not as I should be. And I began to truly believe that he died for me. Truly believe it. 
and even began to accept his forgiveness, something that was hard to do. As my beliefs changed, I slowly changed too. I began each day and still do surrendering everything to him. I've begun to bathe in his love more and more, and over time I've begun to feel his love. As a cucumber becomes a pickle over time by bathing in a potion of water, salt, and vinegar, I felt myself being transformed by the process of opening up to God's love. I'm not a true pickle yet, but I'm in the process. God has empowered me to experience freedom from a lifetime of confusion, loneliness, and compulsions, a freedom I never have known and never thought was possible. My relationships with people most dear to me are improving, and most importantly, I am beginning to be able to hear and feel my wife's loneliness, sadness, and pain that I know over the years I helped cause in her. I'm beginning to put into practice sexual purity and see it as God's gift. He's showing me that any lustful act, whether in my imagination, my eyes, or in action, compromises the beauty and pleasure of sexual union in a marriage. He's teaching me that sex in a marriage is a result of trust, emotional safety, and intimacy between a husband and a wife, the wonderful development in response to mutual respect, commitment, and care. I still have a long way to go, but I believe I'm on the right track. After a lifetime of trying to figure it out myself, I'm finding that God's ways are best. There's an awful lot of pain in that man's story. But there's also a lot of hope. Because what he is finding is that Jesus can make you whole again. It isn't always easy. It isn't always fast. But regardless of what you've done, haven't done, or are afraid to do, Jesus can make you whole. And in a culture where sex is diminished, debased, where it's reduced to the uniting of bodies instead of the joining of two lives, and in a culture where we carry around a lot of baggage because of that, we have amazing good news about a God who loved us enough to create the gift of sex and who puts it inside of marriage to protect it, and about a God who, when we get broken and wounded and insecure, comes to us in the person of Jesus and says, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And in a sex-ridden, sex-anxious, sex-wounded world, that's about the best news you're ever going to hear. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your healing power. Lord, wherever we come, as it relates to this topic, wherever we are right now, Lord, I pray that you would meet us. Lord, pray that you would transform us and make us whole people. Lord, hear our pain, hear our sadness, hear our loneliness, but also, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you and know the hope that comes from you as we keep our minds focused on who you are and on your power. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.